Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast, and I have a treat today. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast from the beginning, the very first conversation partner I had when we started this show was John Nugent, and John is back with us. How you doing, John? I'm doing uh, pretty great, all things considered. It's uh, <laughs> good to be talking with you again. I just want to make sure that you have your microphone disinfected and you're wearing your mask. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to the wrong guy for that. <laughs> yeah, okay, well... I just want our listeners to know that there is some risk here uh, for catching the virus. And of course, we're in the middle of the what was once known as the coronavirus. Those of you who are listening to this podcast 50 years out, you can read it in the history books. That is if we still survive as a human race. All jesting aside, we're doing this over Skype, folks. When we first did the recordings for the initial episodes. We were sitting side by side in the living room. We were not wearing masks or gloves either. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Those were the days that we relish <laughs> and wish were back. But, you know, we were not doing any social distancing and we recorded, I don't know, 12 or 13 episodes. Yeah. So if you want to go back and listen to those, I would recommend you do that. In fact, John, I think some of the episodes we did together were really resonating with people because at the time of this conversation we're having now, the podcast has been downloaded over 180,000 times, which is very nice. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And I've seen over at the After Class podcast, lots of people who kind of first were introduced to us and the concept of the kingdom and the gospel have have kind of ramped onto the After Class podcast that I do with friends here locally. So I appreciate those who have kind of checked us out there as well. Very good. Cross-pollination. Okay, so we are still taking questions from listeners. And this one is very interesting because I have never been asked this question before that I can recall, John. Mm -hmm. But given your great work you've done in the Old Testament, I, I really think it would be interesting for us to just riff off one another and, and see where we come out on this. But it's basically a four-part question, and I'll go through one at a time. We'll kind of just break it up into pieces and answer each one separately. But the first one is, because of the recent virus pandemic, I am hearing some Christians implying that God has brought this virus upon the earth as a punishment or a judgment. And here's the question. Does God still use natural disasters, viruses, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, and even wars to bring judgment on nations? What say you, John Nugent? Does God still bring judgment on nations on the earth? We have no reason to believe biblically um, that God no longer judges nations. You know, the only passage that would suggest that there would be some limitations placed on God's judgment of the world and the nations is God's judgment um, or God's uh, reckoning after the flood, right, where he used flood um, to 
wipe out the earth and to rid the earth of of wickedness. And after the flood, of course, when God places the bow in the clouds, he promises, I'm never going to destroy the earth again on account of human wickedness. Right. And and so what, what this pandemic has in common with the flood account is that it is global in scope. And what's tricky is with the flood, the promise is never to destroy the earth again. Right. Right. Never to wipe out all life. And this is a promise, not just with humans, but also with animals and with creation itself. The covenant never to destroy the earth again um, is with all creation. But what we're experiencing now isn't quite a destruction of all creation. Right. This is this is a, a virus that is infiltrating all creation. And so whereas we have a promise that God's never going to destroy the earth again, there is no statement that never again will he afflict the earth with a disease. Because if you march through the Old Testament, you see um, in the book of Joel, for instance, uh, there appears to have been a recent locust plague on the land that has wreaked havoc on the people, on the land, and on the animals. And um, the prophet describes this plague as God's judgment. And so there is precedent after the flood promise that God is still willing to use um, natural disasters uh, for disciplinary purposes. I think that's the heart of the question is God's still in the business of, meaning he did it in the Old Testament. He did send natural disasters, right? Wars even to bring judgment on nations. And that's really the heart of the question. Does the Lord still do that? Yeah. And, and what we have is there's no statement that he won't. Mm-hmm, <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's precedent that he has. And, and frankly, when you get to the New Testament and you get to books like Romans and you see Christians who are tempted to take it in their own hands to avenge uh, the rulers of the nations in which they live and rebel and, you know, riot against the Romans. And they're specifically told, don't do that. Uh, the governing authorities have a function in God's economy to uh, keep order in the earth. But the reason why God's people don't have to get involved in bringing judgment on the powers and principalities who err, who are wicked, mm-hmm. is because they're called to leave vengeance to God, which presumes that God is still bringing vengeance on nations who step out of line with his purposes for them. I would agree with your statement, because I think this is the summation of it from my viewpoint, that we do not have anything in the Bible that says God no longer brings judgment on nations. That's just not there. Now, the second part of this question is related to that. And this is what the person asks. In light of what Jesus and Paul said about loving one another, loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you, etc., God doesn't still judge people under the new covenant, does he? All right, so this person is saying the basis to believe that God does not judge nations would then be Paul and Jesus, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, you know, do good to those who persecute you, etc. And and what I would say to that, to set those two realities, God's love and God's judgment against one another, is incredibly flawed. God's judgment is all over the New Testament. It's in the New Covenant. It's It's after the ascension of Jesus. And it never conflicts with his love, just as it didn't in the Old Testament. Examples that come to my mind is in Luke 21. Jesus speaks about the judgment that's coming against Jerusalem, which took place in A.D. 70. That was 40 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
Yeah. And interestingly, 40 is the number of testing, trial, and judgment in the Bible. So I don't think that was an accident <laughs> that it happened in 70 AD. But if you read the history books of what took place in 70 AD, when the Romans marched into Jerusalem, Jesus had predicted it perfectly. And I find it interesting, too, and we'll probably come back to this, but the Christians of that day were warned beforehand. I think it's in Eusebius. It talks about prophetic words that were given to get out of the city. But if if you read the books of Jude, Second Peter, Second Thessalonians, First Peter 4, carefully, just as examples, and circle the words judge and wrath, take a look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which were the words of Jesus speaking to churches, the ecclesias in that day, mm-hmm. you cannot come away thinking that, well, because God's love, he doesn't judge. He, there's no wrath in him anymore. You cannot come away with that. And I did a video, John, recently. It's called, How is the Bible Authoritative, Accurate, and Reliable? And at the very end of it, what I did is I read a parade of scriptures in the New Testament that show that Jesus and judgment are not incompatible. But that is a side of of our Lord. And I did that because, you know, you know this very well, but there are now scholars and there are commentators saying that we can't really take parts of the Bible that show a violent side of God, a judgmental side of God. We can't take those seriously, right? That was Israel making it up. And, And you and I did a podcast on this where we talked about the violent portrait of God in the Old Testament. And to my mind, your explanation of that is without peer. It is the best explanation I have ever heard, I've ever come across. But to pit God's wrath and love to pit his judgment and his mercy against one another is just a false dichotomy. You know, the New Testament just cannot bear it. Yeah, I, I think we need to reframe things a little bit. I mean, when people pit God's wrath against his love, they're often presuming a certain definition of wrath. That is that God is mad, God is angry, he's just upset like humans get upset, and he wants someone to pay, right? He has to find, <laughs> he has to find some poor, helpless victim, uh, and they're all, you know, anyone that God would show judgment on is poor and helpless in comparison to God's power, right, <laughs> and strength. Mm-hmm. So he has to find some weak subject to, you know, uh, vent his pent-up fury upon. I think that's just the wrong frame to put on the whole thing, partly because when you think of you know, the most wrathful thing God did in the Old Testament would be to flood the earth. And even that account, there is not a hint of divine anger mentioned in that entire account. Rather, it says that God was grieved by the wickedness that had so filled the earth, that the most gracious thing he could do to preserve some semblance of, of normalcy and ongoing life on the earth is to cleanse it, to make possible a future that had a chance, that had hope. And so I think to frame wrath as mean-spirited, having to hurt people, to pit those that against love, I think that's not a bad idea. But I think biblical wrath, the God who acts on behalf of his creation through judgment, is not vindictive, mean, spiteful. It is accomplishing a purpose that is for creation, right? In the best interests of creation and in the best interests of those whom he loves. I want to read something from Hebrews 12 that I think helps put a frame on this. And it begins in verse 5. It says, You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. 
my child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we've had parents to discipline us and we respect them. Should we not even more be willing to subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so I think this frame of discipline, um, that God disciplines those whom he loves, that he allows them to suffer trials uh, because of the good fruit of holiness that he can bring out of those trials, is a a frame that I think does better justice to the passages in the Bible where God allows uh, wrath or plague or pestilence to come on his people. I, I fully agree with that. And I think, too, the concept of wrath in Scripture is one that, to my mind, would be best described as it's the other side of love. If, for example, you have a child and that child is being ravished and abused by someone, if you love that child, there is a part of you that is going to be angry at that action that that child is being hurt, right? So it's really the other side of love. If there was not wrath in God, it would show that he's indifferent. He's apathetic. He doesn't love. So there is that protective, loving care that's on the other side of wrath, or wrath is manifesting that. You have to get a lot of white out to remove those parts of the Bible. (laughs) I'm talking about the New Testament now and come away with this idea that Jesus is love. He loves his enemies, so there's no wrath in him. You're going to have to do a lot of deleting. I would add to that that, you know, we recognize in society that there's a legitimate place for the police force or the army to root out the world from the serial murderers or the, on a wider kind of governmental scale, the Hitlers, right? It's just, it's right to organize around uh, bringing judgment upon those individuals for the sake of the wider good. Uh, Yet when people come to the Bible and God does something like that for the sake of the whole world, they're appalled. (laughs) God can't do something like that for the good of the world. But us humans with less perspective, uh, more selfish motives, uh, mm. more concern for profit and our own selfish personal well-being, we can do that in a way that it's righteous. <laughs> but the God who loves all people, who cares for the whole world, uh, who is not selfish but self-giving, uh, he wouldn't be able to do that in a way that is in the best interest of everyone. That's an excellent point, and it just shows the degree of cognitive dissonance that kicks in when people try to make the Bible fit their modern or postmodern sensibilities, and I think that's really what's going on here. But to me, Jesus is the human face of God, and he is full of paradoxes and apparent contradictions. You know, there's a side of the Lord that is merciful and tender and gentle, but there's another side of him that is authoritative and strong and wrathful against evil and injustice. That's who he is. This brings us to the next question, John, and that is, what are the marks of when a disaster is, in fact, God's judgment? 
In other words, how can we tell if a catastrophe, you know, be it a virus, be it a flood, be it a hurricane, an earthquake, a tornado, whatever it may be, how can we say, okay, that's God's judgment instead of, well, this is just part of being in the corrupt world that we live in, you know, that's full of sin from the very beginning. What are the markers? And I want to read for our listeners something that you had written about this, and then you could just (laughs) expand it or clarify it or whatever you want to do. But I like it so much, I want to read it. You said, I don't think we have any reason to think that God does not bring judgment on the nations today like he is presented as doing all throughout Scripture. It's a point we made earlier. However, Scripture does not provide any clear criteria for discerning when a particular disaster was sent by God. The only certain biblical criteria is that God tells a prophet, and that is usually because God's people needed to be made aware of it for one reason or another. The book of Habakkuk is pretty clear that we cannot use moral calculus to determine when God is judging a particular nation, since God's calculus works on a higher level than we are able to discern apart from some sort of special revelation. I said that, huh? You did. It's very good, (laughs) isn't it? Well, I'm not sure I can add to that. (laughs) (laughs) It is so complete. It is so perfect. There's nothing else we can say about it. And I like this idea of we can't assess that God is judging a nation because of a moral calculus. And and what I find happening (laughs) is that what people tend to do is they pick their favorite sins, right, to rail against, and they point those out as the reason why God's judging. So you have one group of Christians that say, well, he's judging because of abortion and homosexuality and drug abuse. And then you have another group that says, no, he's judging because of materialism and injustice and slander and rage. (laughs) And it's funny because the people who rail against one set of sins, they don't really like talking about those other kind of sins, you know what I mean? And vice versa, right? So that's an observation that I have made. Christians tend to have the favorite sins that they don't like, so to speak. And those are the ones that kick in all the time or mention when when this conversation about God's judgment comes into being. But I want to say something to you about this and see what you think. I believe in what some have called redemptive withdrawal. And this is the idea that God, when he brings judgment, and this would be true in the Old Testament, this would be true even today if if we can say such and such is God's judgment. But it's the idea, John, that God doesn't directly bring evil into the world. Instead, he pulls back his protection, and it is now the enemy who does it. So, for example, there's a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 16. Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. So I take that passage and then I look at places where something negative happens. It is ascribed to God. But you look at the same incidents in another passage and it's ascribed to Satan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the way I put that together is, It's not God directly doing it. It's God pulling back, withdrawing, and now the enemy is coming in and doing it. But then God does what he always does. He turns it for good. And I think the ultimate paradigm of that is the death of Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Well, on the one hand, it was evil, wicked men, right? But you pull the curtain back and it was Satan. But you pull the curtain back again and it was God delivering his son 
unto death. And the language is real interesting. He delivered him. In other words, he allowed it to happen. It was as if God pulled back his protective powers and allowed the principalities and powers to work through sinful, wicked men and to you know, influence the Romans to nail those nails into his hands and his feet. Yeah, I think this notion of redemptive withdrawal is profoundly biblical. <laughs> and I, I think uh, the book that makes this case most clear is the book of Ezekiel. Uh, it's a very memorable image where the prophet is asked to lay on his side for so many days, right, representing the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's supposed to eat this food that's been baked on top of dung. And what's important in the context is that Ezekiel builds this little wall, this little siege wall (laughs) that kind of is around Jerusalem to protect Jerusalem. And he's told to remove that wall. Um, And that wall represents God's protection over Jerusalem. In the book of Ezekiel, and and not just in that image, but that's one of the most memorable ones, God's judgment upon Jerusalem is not that God shows up with a bunch of angels and swords and starts punishing the Israelites. Rather, God withdraws his protective presence, and then the nations do what the nations have wanted to do for a long time, which is to take that city, right? And so Babylon then can easily descend upon the city of Jerusalem, uh, attack its people, burn its temple, haul people into exile. And this is God's judgment upon Israel. It's his judgment upon them for choosing a king like the nations and rejecting his reign over them. It's his judgment on them for uh, forsaking Torah and living like the Canaanites who he drove out of the land before them. Um, The most judgmental act that God does upon his people in the Old Testament is the siege of Jerusalem, which Ezekiel frames as God's main act was to get out of the way, get out wow. of the way. And, and so we have to think about, you know, especially when you're talking about God's people in particular, like God promises to protect us, to be there for us, to mm-hmm. be among us uh, as his people in a very special way. We are his treasured possession, right? His chosen people. And so there are all sorts of trials that we might otherwise undergo that we never experience because God is protecting us. And his judgment is when you refuse his warnings, when you refuse his light disciplines, um, then he has to do something (laughs) to get our attention, to jar us into an awareness of just how far we've fallen and just how dangerous of a position we are in to fall away from him altogether, that he withdraws his protective presence. He allows the world to have its way with us. And that is God's wrath. That is his judgment. But it's tricky. You know, it's tricky to then assign, oh, so in this case, because this virus is happening and Christians are among those who are dying, that God must have stopped protecting them. And that's where I invoke the example of Habakkuk. And, you know, on that earlier quote that you read, I think the one place I can expand is what is going on in Habakkuk. And to encourage everyone, read the book of Habakkuk. It's not very long at all. It's just a few chapters. Uh, you can do it in, you know, under 15 minutes. But it tells a story of a prophet. And, and here is a prophet. And he doesn't even know exactly what God is doing, right? And he is a man of God, a recognized prophet. Um, but he looks around him at the wickedness going on in Israel, and he cries out to God, why won't you do something? And God responds to him. And this is what's great about the book of Habakkuk. It's a conversation with God. And, and we get so few back-and-forth conversations mm-hmm. with God, especially about what God is doing among the nations. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is the very question that people are asking. 
God, what are you doing among the nations in our day? But Habakkuk initiates this conversation with God by complaining about the wickedness that God lets continue in Israel. And God speaks up to the prophet and says, don't you worry, I see it. I'm doing something about it, but you have to wait. <laughs> you have to be patient. You have to be faithful. Uh, in fact, I am raising up the Babylonians, that conquering nation that knows how to put nations in its place. Uh, I'm bringing them in, and they will bring my judgment upon the wicked people in Israel. And Habakkuk, when he hears that, he's not all that comforted. <laughs> he sees his loved ones as being prey to be picked upon by the Babylonians. And so he cries out to God and says, God, you can't do that. You know, your eyes are too holy to look on on evil and wickedness, and yet you're going to bring Babylon, who is a nation that is more wicked than the most wicked of Israel, to judge Israel. And and in, in Habakkuk's moral calculus, only the right more righteous can be God's instrument to judge those who are less righteous. But Babylon is clearly more wicked. Uh, and God has to, again, through special revelation, address the prophet and say, uh, no, that's not how I work. Sometimes mm -hmm. God will use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation. Mm -hmm. um, but God does bring some comfort to Habakkuk and say, listen, I'm not a monster. <laughs> I'm not blind to the wickedness of Babylon. I know they're worse off. God is not ignorant. And he will, when he's done using Babylon to discipline his people Israel because he loves his people Israel and he wishes for them to repent. After God's done using Babylon to do that, God will bring judgment upon Babylon for the wickedness that Babylon has committed. And, and so Habakkuk wasn't wrong in thinking that Babylon is more wicked or that, you know, it doesn't seem right that the more wicked are prospering over those who are more righteous than them. Uh, but God, again, you know, he's playing chess in 3D. He's got the whole board set before him of what's going on among the nations. He's got the big picture in mind. He knows that this temporary setback for his people means long-term restoration for his people. Uh, so for a while, it's going to seem backwards, where the more wicked are thriving and the more righteous are struggling. And this is why we can't take any kind of moral calculus. This is also what the book of Job is all about. You know, how come bad things are happening to a righteous man like Job. And the answer of the book is, Job, you're not in a position to assess what God is doing. Yeah. And so I think it's it's a temptation for us to rank people, cultures on a scale of righteousness. Then when a bad thing happens to know, oh, this must be God. Yeah, exactly. I also think that I draw a distinction between God's wrath and judgment on his people versus God disciplining his people. So when it comes to the follower of Jesus Christ, the one who is in Christ, the one in whom Christ dwells, when the Lord looks at us as father, right, Jesus looks at us as elder brother, he certainly can be grieved. The spirit can be grieved. We see that in Ephesians, for example, grieve not the spirit. We can certainly quench the spirit. Thessalonians talks about that. And we have God's discipline which is a very real thing. That's mentioned in Revelation in Hebrews, the text that you read. But I, I don't experience that as wrath, right? When God is chastening me, it's, it's like a father who chastens his child, and he is hurt over it, right? The old saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you, right? But when it comes to nations, I see a difference. And if God is pouring out his wrath, if, I say if, because I don't have light on this concerning this present crisis, 
But let's just say that in certain epochs of world history, these were judgments of God to correct sin, to deal with sin. One of the things that you bring out here, I think, is great, and that is, what is the mark of it? Well, the mark of it is there has to be a prophetic voice saying, this is coming, and this is the Lord. This is the hand of God. And here's why. And here's why. And we understand that as, again, redemptive withdrawal. You know, God is pulling back the protection and letting the enemy do his thing because the enemy is the destroyer. In all of the epics of history, aside from 70 AD, which again in history books, God's people were warned that this was judgment. Jesus warned about it. I mean, it's right there in the New Testament in the Gospels. But aside from Jesus, prophetic people in that day did see it coming, and they're warning the people to leave Jerusalem. I'm not aware of cases where there was a prophetic word, and then, you know, we had whatever epidemic or pandemic. Now, I will say this along that line, John. There is an alleged prophetic word by David Wilkerson that was given in 1986. Now, I say alleged prophetic word because you cannot find this in any of his books, any of his messages spoken on audio. You cannot find this in any of his articles. It came through a friend of his, I believe it was Mike Evans, who said that David Wilkerson told me in 1986, and here's the following, I see a plague coming on the world, and the bars, churches, and government will shut down. The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it never has been shaken. The plague is going to force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles, and repentance will be the cry from the man of God in the pulpit. And out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. I cannot find this quote anywhere except since the coronavirus swept the world. In other words, I can't find it in an article or essay or anywhere beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I trust David Wilkerson because he said a lot of things in his book, The Vision, which was published in 1973, 1974. A lot of those things came to pass. I wish I can read this and, you know, I can find it in an article or a journal or something that Mike Evans wrote, say, from 2003 or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, if if this was said in 1986, how come we're only finding out about it now and we can't seem to locate it before that? So I ask my listeners, if you can find this quote by David Wilkerson in any piece of writing before the summer of 2019, then please bring it to my attention. It can't be a blog article because you can change the dates on blog articles. It has to be a forum where the dates cannot change, right? Forgive me for my skepticism, but I've seen so much that turned out not to be true when it was alleged to be that I do have my skeptic hat on here for this. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting testimony. And I think part of what we talked about before of, you know, when God does reveal a disaster through a prophet, there is a purpose and there is a call to action and and there is an audience. I don't want to assume that God has never anticipated that this would happen, that he has never let anyone in on it, whether it was last year or 34 years ago. Why would I assume that God never let anyone in on this? But that was a message for them to give to their people to bring about a response from them. I have a hard time calling such a message, if it happened, a message for us, precisely because it wasn't delivered to us precisely because it hasn't even been recorded in a form that's accessible to us, that we can even be certain that it's from him. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. Um, so if God did let him in on this thing, uh, maybe it serves some function in his prayer life, in his walk, in his congregation. They, there's always a call to respond to a prophecy when it is given to the people to whom it is given. The assumption there um, that I would like to point out is that God drops these prophetic time bombs in the past that don't go off until 34 years later. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden they mean things. The messages of prophecy all throughout the Old Testament always had a meaning for the generation that was being addressed. Now there's the unique genre of apocalyptic literature, which is a different story, where a, a prophet uh, who is long dead, a story is written about them, seeing a vision that pertains to the current day of the time when the apocalyptic book is being written. And so in the apocalyptic literature, we might have someone long dead, and I, I think of the book of First Enoch, but in the second century, you know, a couple of centuries before Jesus, you have this flourishing bunch of books um, that use the man Enoch who walked with God and was no more and placed on his lips when he walked the earth a vision about the future destruction of Jerusalem uh, in the second century BC. And this genre is intentionally kind of placing in the past a word that didn't really mean anything in Enoch's day, but sure does mean something in the second century. But ordinarily, that's not how biblical prophecy functions. It's a word for the day to a people, not some kind of secret planted in the past that doesn't really have meaning to the present of the time, person who receives it, but is meant only for someone decades later. That kind of phenomenon doesn't have a lot of biblical precedent. Yeah. We should be a little suspicious of it. But there's something I want to pick up on that you said before that I thought— I think was really important is that you know God's discipline of, of his people should not be uh, automatically transferred to how he relates to the nations. Like God's right. people are his set-apart people. We can't necessarily take statements that God said to Israel through a prophet of Israel for the Israelites and say, and this is how God relates to Babylon or Persia or America or Iraq or China. Right, God's dealings with his set-apart people are fundamentally different from his dealings with the nations of the world because he's got different purposes for them. Uh, he disciplines us. One of the differences is God disciplines us, his people, historically so that we don't reach such a state of wickedness that he has to rid the earth of us. That's a difference with kingdoms. Uh, God does discipline kingdoms in such a way that they go out of existence as a social, economic, political reality. Babylon is no longer a nation. Assyria, no longer a nation. The people who lived in that land, well, they continue to have children who had children who had children who walk the earth today. But that social, political entity is done. They're now in the annals of history. Whereas Israel, as his set-apart people, continue to have a social, political, economic presence in the world because God disciplines them before they reach a point where he has to do away with them altogether because he has a unique calling upon them to use them to be a witness to the world of what his kingdom is like because he was preparing them for the coming of the Messiah who would gather them and restore them for their kingdom mission. So there is a difference. We've got to be careful to take judgment passages about Israel from God in the Bible and say that that's how he works with the nations. God also does discipline kings of nations. Mm -hmm. um, we have a classic example is Nebuchadnezzar, right, who for seven years is driven out of the face of his kingdom and public rule, and he goes mad for a while, and God is doing this to humble him because of his pride, of his accomplishments. And afterwards, God restores Nebuchadnezzar 
back to a state of power and sanity again. And so there are examples of God disciplining nations. You think of Jonah, right, disciplining Nineveh. They have a revival. Things change for them. Uh, they avoid destruction. But what God disciplines them for is fundamentally different from what he disciplines his people for. And so I've kind of done a study of all the passages of the Old Testament where God brings judgment upon a nation. And, and I, and I kind of tried to organize my findings. Why does God judge nations? And never does he judge them for not believing in Jesus. Never does he judge them for not being a monotheist. Never does he judge them for not following Torah. These are all things that he judges his people for. Uh, rather, when God judges the nations, he judges them for pride in their accomplishments, in their wealth, or in their supposed uniqueness. He judges them for violent military domination over other nations, and he judges them for mistreating his own set-apart people. Mm -hmm. These are the top three causes for which God judges other nations, and there are over 25 instances where he, he judges them for those three different things. Other things that he judges them for are like two or three different hits, right? But these are the big three. And so if we're going to look about why God is judging the nations, it's not going to be for not living the upright life that God revealed to them in Torah, because they don't have Torah. <laughs> he holds them accountable for the role he has for them, and he's using them to keep order and peace throughout the world. One nation keeps in check another nation. That's the purpose that God uses the kings of the nations for. And so he punishes them when they abuse that trust and that responsibility, and thus their pride, their violent domination, their mistreatment, their over-punishment of his people, those are the kind of things God judges nations for. That's interesting, and you would say then that that pattern of judging the nations and why he did it would still apply today. Absolutely. If someone wants to say, oh, God's judging this nation, I know that because, you know, of their sexual practice, or I know this because they took uh, the Ten Commandments off of the courtroom, or, you know, they're, they're picking reasons. But if the kind of reasons they're picking do not line up with the kinds of reasons for which God judges nations in Scripture, then we have reason to wonder whether that's not, like you said before, people picking their favorite pet sin, and then associating some negative consequence with God's wrath. Well, I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> Wouldn't want to have a brawl here on Skype. <laughs> um, because I wanted that to be clear to our listeners. And the other thing about this too, John, I want to point out is that there are some people who are hearing you talk about God's people, and you're referring to Old Testament Israel, but the way they're hearing that is, well, you're talking about Israel today because they're still God's people. I don't think that's what you're saying, because Old Testament Israel and contemporary Israel are two very different creatures. And the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel is, in fact, the ecclesia of God. We are the Lord's people, those who are in Jesus Christ, those who are part of his kingdom. That's the fulfillment, correct? Yeah, when I use language of Israel, I'm talking about Israel in Scripture. I'm not talking about Israel, the social political entity in Palestine today, which, as far as we can tell, does not have a unique status as God's set-apart people the way they did in the Old Testament. 
That's right. You can read Galatians and, gosh, the whole whole book of Romans, book of Hebrews, and a better part of the New Testament to show that what Jesus was doing in the Gospels is he was reconstituting a new Israel with his 12 and all who followed him, the ecclesia, that was, in fact, the people of God. We are the people of God who are in Christ. We are part of his kingdom. I did come across a note here that apparently Times Square Church which is the church that David Wilkerson had founded and he ministered there. That was his association. They carried his writings and his audio messages, put out a statement saying, to the best of our knowledge, David Wilkerson has never made this statement either in his prophetic books or in his recorded messages. So that kind of confirms what I was suspecting is that there is no proof at all that those words actually came from David Wilkerson. And even if they had... That's 1986. You know, we're in 2020. (laughs) And how many people even knew about that before this pandemic hit? So I just think that's really slender evidence. It's too obscure, is my point. Yeah. I love David Wilkerson, and I think he was on in many things. But my point is, I don't have any reason to believe this actually came from him because we cannot find it in any of his writings. This is someone alleging that he told him in a private conversation in 1986 that this is what he said. Well, (laughs) maybe, maybe not. But even so, you know, one of the things that I thought about, John, when I was thinking through this particular question of what are the marks of God judging a nation? And I thought, well, it would be the protection of his people. If, say, God was judging the United States, but all who are really walking with Jesus Christ should not be affected by it. When the plagues, you know, blew through Egypt, well, God's people were completely protected. On the other hand, sometimes the grace was simply not to be killed, as with Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe. And then there were times when innocent people suffered because of national judgment. Second Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, where David's guilt caused others to suffer. God's people sometimes are affected when he judges the righteous remnant of Israel, they all still went into exile in the nations. But we do have we do have promises of protection during times of wrath. The, the end of Isaiah 26, for example, and then what I think of when I think of the main protection promises is Psalm 91. Nothing will come nigh us. So it seems to me that on the one hand, you can make a case, John, that if God judges the nation, his people in it will be fully and totally protected. But you can also make a case that in some cases, he judges a nation, his people are affected. And that kind of makes it a little bit murky for me. Yeah, I I think citing Old Testament passages is particularly suspect in this particular case, uh, precisely because in the Old Testament, God's people were concentrated, for most of the Old Testament, in one space. Even in Egypt, where the plagues you know, didn't fall upon that area of Goshen where God's people were living, I mean, they were, they were kind of concentrated and isolated, and they had you know, the marks on the doors and in the land and in the Psalms, which are referring to God protecting the people who are a kingdom that occupies territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, there's a plot of land. And what changes with the Great Commission is God's people become a trans-territorial entity that, like salt, kind of scatters and infiltrates the earth. And, you know, we are planting ecclesias in every city, in every town of any, every nation. And so we are not physically set apart from 
the nations the way we used to be. And, and that is the shape of a mission that is precisely for the nations, right? So God's protection on his people where he had the wall of geographic protection around them is fundamentally different from God has sent us into the world to permeate the cultures, to uh, establish kind of kingdom communities that display, embrace, proclaim his reign in every city. In scattering us like this, God has made us vulnerable. And so our example is not going to be the example of a set-apart people who were spared when everyone else was judged. Our example is going to be, see the joy these people have as they suffer alongside us. See the hope they have despite despair as they suffer what we suffer. Like our incarnational ministry to the nations is precisely that we suffer what they suffer because we have been scattered among them precisely to win them over for the Lord. And so this is the biggest change with Israel. It's no longer, and this is why I, I really think it's a huge mistake to equate modern nation state Israel with the church. It's not just the particular origins and history of the modern nation state of Israel. It's the fact that the salvation history changed the geographic state of God's people with the Great Commission by making us a scattered global phenomenon. And anyone that locates the peoplehood of God in a specific territory is reversing that critical moment in salvation history. And I think in that light, the Old Testament passage is about protecting God's set-apart people. That protection has served its purpose. When the Messiah came, there was a geographically located, concentrated people that Christ could gather and create the messianic kingdom out of. That purpose having been fulfilled, we are now among the nations and thus vulnerable to suffer from the things that they suffer from. The promises that say are in the Psalms, and I guess I'm thinking of Psalm 91. I'm one who believes with Dietrich Bonhoeffer that the Psalms are the recorded prayers of Jesus Christ. And so if Psalm 91 is Jesus praying to his Father, and he is the one who is the beloved, then because I am in Christ, because you are in Christ, I believe we could still not by taking Old Testament promises of protection to his people in a given situation. I think that's what you're speaking of mainly. God said, I'm going to protect you, Israel. And so we apply that to us today when we're among the nations. But to take Psalm 91, for example, it's the prayer book of the church, the ecclesia. If I follow the conditions that are there, because there's two conditions in Psalm 91, I believe the Lord will honor that and will protect us. God, in a special way, protects his people. Mm -hmm. uh, who are faithful to him in various ways, which I think Psalm 91 is referring to, then we can count on we live as people who are protected. But our protection is not for our own sake. Right? God's special treatment of his set-apart people is always for the sake of mission. And when protecting us physically from harm would further God's mission, I believe God protects us. And so yes. Jesus, there are times when Jesus, they tried to kill Jesus earlier on in his ministry. And, you know, he all, he miraculously disappears through the crowd, right? And is protected. But there is a time later when Jesus is not protected from the guards who go to arrest him, not protected from those who flog him or crucify him. There's a time when our suffering is precisely an asset to our kingdom witness and mission. Yep. So I think there's a difference. There's, you know, God protects us when he wants to do something with us that requires us being protected for a time. And then God removes that special protection so that we might suffer, 
whether it's for our own discipline and upbuilding or whether it is for the mission and for the kingdom witness to be enhanced, whether through our faithful endurance of it or through some other good that God brings out of, of the suffering that that he doesn't protect us from. And so I, I would just want to tie that protection to mission. I totally agree with that. And I think in the context of Psalm 91, because obviously Jesus was tortured, Jesus was crucified, Jesus did die, right? There was the redemptive withdrawal on the cross. And we have that great Psalm 23 that, you know, the Lord is our shepherd, and if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, for he's with us. Embedded in that, if the enemy is seeking to take my life or seeking to take me down or you down, for example, before the time, then I think Psalm 91 is a word from the Lord that I can stand on because it applied to Christ. It applied to me. But it's not this magic formula that I'm never going to get hurt. Nothing negative is going to happen to me. He may, in fact, desire me to be a martyr or you to be a martyr. That's not removed from that Psalm. Yeah, that's right. So the study you did on judgment of the nations throughout Scripture, John, uh, we'll make that available in the show notes of this episode so people can download it and uh, read it. That'd be great. So just to summarize, we have said that there is nothing in Scripture that would say or imply that God no longer judges nations, number one. There is no contradiction between what Jesus and Paul taught about loving one another, loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you, and the wrath of God and the judgment of God being revealed and displayed in our world at times. Those two are not at odds with each other. And we have said that the marks of whether or not a natural disaster, for example, is in fact the judgment of God, is that there is a prophetic word given by a recognized prophet that the judgment is coming, what it will be, its purpose, and basically to the Lord's people, at least from what we've seen historically, is, you know, here's how to remove yourself from it, right? This brings us to the very last question, John, and that is because the current coronavirus pandemic has affected nations, is it a judgment from God on the world? <laughs> <laughs> That's really easy to answer. I don't know. <laughs> it would be presumptuous to say that I do, and it would be extremely misleading to people and could really drag the name of our our Lord and Savior through the mud if I'm making claims to know something that I don't know. Absolutely. Romans 8, we live in a corrupt world. I'm someone who does believe in the language of fall. I do believe that there was something that happened in the garden and things went wrong. There is a curse upon the earth. And Romans 8 talks about all of creation groaning for that day of liberty. And so the world we live in, the world that God operates in, the world that God is, is over, is a world that produces volcanoes and hurricanes and tornadoes and famines and whether this is just one of the natural results of sin going way back to the beginning or the hand of God, his redemptive withdrawal where the enemy has brought this about and God is using it to judge nations. I have been looking for prophetic words regarding this. I'm talking about before it happened, folks, not after. But I think we know how we might be called by God to respond to it. Absolutely. Let's continue in our mission to embrace, display, proclaim his kingdom and offer the world a hope that it desperately needs.
Absolutely. And I've talked about this in previous episodes on the podcast and in a number of articles on my blog. And we'll put those in the show notes as well. Well, we're going to sign off now and we will do another recording at some point in the future. Until then, stay safe and stay away from grandma. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.